This is Skip Stewart, Chief Improvement Officer and Vice President. Hello, everybody. I'm HF Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Union County. And hey, everyone, I am Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are very honored to have Dr. Paul DePriest, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare with us today. Dr. DePriest, we just want to thank you for being here. And in one of our earlier podcasts, I talked a little bit about my journey uh, with continuous improvement. And we want to know about your journey. And to sort of set this up for you, I want to tell you a little story and you may or may not remember it, but three or four years ago, it may have even been five years ago, you came to New Albany and you spent uh, a morning or a couple of hours with me in the operating room and sort of following me around. And I have to admit at that time, I didn't know anything about the Toyota production system, uh, Kaizen, Kata, all those words going to the Gimba really didn't mean anything to me. And, and I was trying to figure out what you were doing and, and what was going on, but is what happened is we had come out of the OR and I was getting ready to put some, some orders into the computer. And one of our, our GYNs came out and he was having a terrible day. And as chief of surgery, he, he didn't know who you were and he lit right into me. And he was giving me the what for about the things that were not going right in the operating room. And I think he even, put in a few expletives with that. And I was so embarrassed and I was saying, I can't believe that this is happening to me right here with, with, with Dr. DePriest. And uh, I did my best to sort of defuse the situation a little bit and he walked away and, and there was this sort of awkward silence between us. And, and finally you, in, in your, in, in just a great gracious way, you said, you know, HF, he said, when I was back practicing in Kentucky, that was me. And, and, and you said, I had a, I had a big issue one time and I went to, I don't know if it was the director of surgery or the chief of surgery or the chief medical officer. And you said you, you were letting him know what was going on. And, and he challenged you. And he said, he said, well, well, Dr. DePriest, what are you going to do about it? And it seems like from that point on that that's, that's sort of how your journey began. And I would like you to uh, elaborate on that and, and tell us a little bit about that story, if you don't mind. And then some. Well, well, thanks. Uh, thanks, uh, Dr. Mason. Do you mind if I call you HF today? You can call me HF. Yes, sir. I, I wish you would. All right. Well, um, listen, uh, HF, I, I, I remember that day like it was yesterday. It was very vivid in my mind and certainly, it took me back to my uh, my earlier years, and I was at the University of Kentucky for uh, you know 25 years on faculty, and uh, and was there 30 years in total, and uh, and and I think to summarize it, I became the best complainer in the world about the way the operating rooms uh, didn't work properly, and one day the chief of staff. Uh, who was a neurosurgeon, said, well, Paul, That's right. uh, you know, I, I, I think that maybe you could help fix something. And <clears throat> the first thing that he asked me to fix was a problem where women uh, were occasionally a surprise on the morning of surgery uh, when they would have a pregnancy test that was positive or 
their surgery would have to be delayed because of a pregnancy test that was positive. And so the, that was the first problem that I was asked to solve. And so I, I scurried away and built a standard protocol for pregnancy testing on appropriate women. And uh, I was asked to present that to the surgery committee. And uh, summarily, I was shot full of holes uh, for suggesting uh, that I would try to tell another group of surgical-type colleagues um, what to order on their patients and when prior to surgery. And I think it was at that moment that I realized that some of the greatest barriers that we have to improvement are really the physicians themselves, and I was one of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I really embarked on a path of trying to understand how to build standards and then how to collegially implement standards. Subsequent to that, um, that a mentor of mine, his name was Dr. Byron Young, he was also a neurosurgeon, uh, he asked me to uh, take some additional responsibilities and I helped co-manage the operating rooms for six years. And during that time, uh, we took on multiple projects uh, to, to improve flow, scheduling, efficiency. We did a full redesign of operating room processes, um, uh, partnering with uh, DJ Sullivan uh, and associates and their teams. And it was during that time frame that I, I really got introduced to engineers who um, were working with the College of Engineering at the University of Kentucky. These engineers were from Toyota under a grant from Fujio Cho, um, who was at the time the president of Toyota Motor Manufacturing Kentucky. And so at, at that time, I really um, was infected with this uh, idea that we could improve the operating rooms and make them more beneficial, um, more customer satisfying to not only patients and families, uh, but also to surgeons and nurses and other colleagues. Thank you so much, Dr. DePriest. So I'm fairly new to the continuous improvement space. Uh, Skip has asked me to join this, and I've been learning a lot. We've recorded a few episodes already that have not aired yet, uh, many on uh, the six starter questions and on TWI job instructions. And so I'm learning a lot about standardization and what we hope to achieve with standardization. And what I would like for you to, to help me understand is just what what to you is the overall goal of standardization in healthcare, and and then what have you seen in your career as far as where where things were when you started and, and where things are now? So I think where I started in medicine, uh, you know, twenty five or thirty years ago, <clears throat> a little longer than that now, um, it was really the wild west, meaning that any surgeon could choose whatever instruments they wanted and whatever variable supplies they wanted and whatever vendor they wanted and uh, could demand those uh, instruments and uh, supplies be brought to their operating room. Uh, fast forward to today and we have a much more standard formulary around instrumentation, around uh, the materials that we use in, a, in an OR case and the vendors uh, that will allow uh, to participate in supplying, um, uh, you know, very, uh, implants and so forth in a in an operating room environment. So there's been a lot of movement over time, and I've been able to see that evolution from more of a wild west mentality uh, to a much more structured, um, 
focus on being able to standardize the types of instruments and the types of supplies that we'll use in an OR case. That's just a tiny example. Um, we've seen the same kind of standardization in the way in which we care for a congestive heart failure patient. We now rely on protocols, pathways, and order sets to help decrease some of the variation that would have occurred had we not offered uh, those types of, uh, of structure uh, in the care environment. And so I think there's a, a growing demand uh, for standardization. Now, you could beg the question, why? And, and I, I think I can answer it most easily by saying that the greatest element that introduces variation in outcomes, and variations in outcome equates to low quality. The more variation in outcome, the higher uh, the, the, the range around that median desired outcome, the lower the quality. By physicians introducing variability in the operating room or in the care of a congestive heart failure patient, you're apt and likely to have a lower quality outcome across the board. So implementing a standard and decreasing the variation around that mean gives you higher quality outcomes. Now, that sounds reasonable, and I think we would all sit down at a chalkboard and agree that the math works. The difference is engineers have been doing this work and industry has been doing this work for over 70 years, and they've been focused on it. But in medicine, we have not paid attention uh, to the science of improvement or understood, like mechanical engineers do or industrial engineers, how to decrease unnecessary variation. So I think we're, we're coming to, to an era where we are, are engaged in a discussion now. We're starting to implement um, more standards of care, uh, but we still have uh, probably 60 years uh, to make up uh, in my way of looking at it. And what would you say are kind of the greatest opportunities and successes we've had so far? I feel like the surgical care has come the longest way, the quickest, whereas maybe the medical side has lagged a little bit. Is that what you've seen? And, and what would you, why would you think the, the barriers are there for, for that side of things? Well, I'm not, I'm not certain there are, there are more barriers for internal medicine doctors than there are for surgeons. I think they're probably very similar in nature. I think in surgery, though, um, it's much more centered around physical activities and um, things I can hold in my hand. It, it, it's not abstract where many of the more cognitive specialties, uh, it's the way I think about addressing a given disease, how I approach a patient with a given set of symptoms. And that's, I think, in, by its own nature, is a little more abstract. Um, so I'll come back to that in a second. In the operating room, it's much easier to implement a surgical checklist. We all stop physically. Uh, we have specific people in the room who have the, the task of going through the checklist, and that becomes a standard that we can implement, and it's triggered by the start of the case. We don't have similar triggered start times when we're taking care of a congestive heart failure patient. Um, in fact, the start times are, in many cases, dictated by the, the patient's response uh, to a diuretic or, or another you know, uh, cardiac med that we may have added uh, yesterday. And so I think there's a little more abstract nature in, in the medical um, diagnoses that we have to address, but, but the way that we're addressing them and the work, Jake, you know, that you're doing is important. 
and that is how do we get to more standard work for physicians. And having standards uh, and work standards that are built in such a way that they make sense to every physician, every advanced practice provider, every supportive RN who's very active in the care of the patient, so that we're all singing from the same hymnal, using the same approach to the work, and then, once again, decreasing that variation around the outcomes. I think that's why surgery was uh, probably a, a little bit ahead in getting to those standards. In my experience, as, as we're trying to, to increase standardization in, across the organization, the, the number one obstacle is, are the physicians themselves, and, and, and me being one of these, and Jake and you, and we are very, very resistant to the word standard because we, we, we tend to label it as, as cookbook medicine. And, you know, we, we were trained thinking that, that medicine is not only a science, but it's an art. And that, that when you're introducing these standards and you're trying to tell me how I need to practice medicine, you, you, were, you were taking away my autonomy. You were taking away, um, you know, my, my, my ability to practice art. And what, how, do we, how do we overcome that obstacle with the, with the physicians? How do we get them aligned and get them engaged uh, in, these, in these processes? Well, I'll start with the easiest answer, HF. I think the first answer is, is that from the earliest time that a medical student uh, starts thinking about rendering excellent care, We've got to begin teaching them that the way they do that is to deliver standard care. They've got to identify that there is a best way uh, to treat congestive heart failure. Now, we, we might have identified a best care model today. It'll have to be further improved tomorrow, and that's part of performance improvement. But it begins with a standard, and we've got to begin teaching young people, young physicians, that this is part of how we render good care. Um, I, as I carry it forward and say, how do we deal with a physician who's been out in practice 50 years? That's a much different question. And I think one that uh, probably I, I would push, push it back to Skip. Um, I think when you think about how Edwards Deming and, um, and how TWI was used to take um, individuals who weren't used to working on planes and to teach them how to work on planes, one element of that was in how do we relate to one another in the workplace and how do we respectfully challenge one another in the workplace about the outcomes that, that we mutually uh, want to achieve. And I think that's, a, that's something that, you know, we've seen both sides of it, right, from that, from that day in the OR we saw ways of, uh, or types of interactions that aren't necessarily respectful and probably don't promote the most quick improvement. I've been a partner you know, in that over, over my career and, uh, and I understand it. But I think we have to learn how to respectfully challenge one another uh, to get the best outcomes possible with the minimal variation around that desired outcome. And so that, that's been my approach through my career and I think um, we've had success. Uh, uh, we certainly haven't achieved at Nirvana. That that'll be more in you know Jake's lifetime. Uh, I, I think he's <laughs> younger than we are. 
Yeah, I remember last at last year's TWI summit, I was sitting around the table. This was in Oxford, and I was sitting with some doctors from Cincinnati, and I was telling them about how, you know, repeatedly on when I'm closing the skin on my laparoscopic cholecystectomies that I get the wrong suture. I get a monocryl, which my partner uses, and I use a vicryl. And, you know, I, I, I told them that I, I try to have a teaching moment in the operating room. I don't blow up, but I, I talk to the techs and I, I say, you know, we have preference cards and, you know, we're not going to make a mistake if we look at the preference card every, every time. And, and I thought I'd made this big, great point. And, and one of the docs from Cincinnati say, well, let's, he said, well, Dr. Mason, let's take it a step further. He says, why can't you and your partner agree on using the same suture to close the skin? And you, you would take that whole variable out of the equation. And I, I said, uh, touche, uh, I see what you're, I see what you're saying. So, yeah, that's a great example, a great example. And on such a, you know, a simplistic part of the operation, yet so it's such an important part. And even that is difficult to get physicians to standardize. I've been through the same thing uh, in my group in Kentucky. Uh, I remember when one of our young partners, a wonderful young guy named Fred Ulan, he uh, trained at Stanford and, um, and then I think Bowman Gray, and then came to us, and he challenged us on the way that we were doing fascial closure. And we, we all prided ourselves that we did surgery the same basic uh, way. And, uh, and once he convinced us with literature that, you know, using a particular uh, type of suture in a particular type of closure manner was superior, we all converted, you know, like in the same month. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but it took quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of uh, effort uh, to get that accomplished. I just need to know, HF, did you change or did your partner change? We're still working on that. <laughs> well, Dr. We're, we're still doing some PDSA on that. Okay. Dr. DePriest, if I'll kind of maybe ask a, a final question, and Dr. Mason and Dr. Lancaster can for sure build off of it as we uh, as we so thankful that you're on this podcast with us. Is from day one, uh, you uh, for the last seven years, you've been uh, my boss and more important, my leader. And from day one, you have talked about being a principle minded organization. And within Baptist Cares, we have. Uh, 2.0, we have high-level principles, and as you know, within the Baptist management system, we have 11 guiding principles, and those guiding principles are very similar to the Shingo principles, except we added trust and we added empathy. And so we go from everything from respect and humility and trust and empathy all the way through systemic thinking and constancy of purpose. I guess and you, you're the one that encouraged me to be a Shingo examiner. I guess the question is, why do you think it's so important uh, that we be a principle-minded organization and that our management system be grounded on these guiding principles? Well, I think first and foremost, it's because we should be humble. So uh, I think if we don't have humility inculcated in our culture and in our leaders, we're apt not to learn from others as effectively or as quickly as we ought to. Um, so when I mentioned earlier that we're 70 years behind industry, 
we're not only 70 years behind industry and in how we look at standard work, but we're 70 years behind many industries and in how we interact with people and how we um, communicate with people. So imagine a large industrial shop floor um, that isn't able to communicate how a given task needs to be performed. They would not be able to create the same amount of high quality outputs, whether or not it's a Toyota Camry or whether or not it's a, um, you know, a, a, a Temkin uh, uh, rollerball bearing, which was another one of my uh, colleagues uh, used to make. Um, but in order to, in order to get there, uh, they have to have a culture that supports certain levels of communication or respect. <clears throat> so as I started studying uh, the Toyota production system, back then we called it lean. I kind of moved away from using that terminology as I studied more deeply. And the Shingo model, uh, as published by Utah State University, I thought really clearly dug a little deeper and at that moment, you realize a lot of it connects to the work that Edward Demings um, wrote about many, many decades ago. And that is to say that there are certain foundational principles, uh, like the laws of nature, that apply uh, to organizations and apply to people in exactly the same way that the law of gravity does. In other words, the law of gravity dictates what happens to me if I choose to jump out the window today. Um, the principle of respecting every individual gets to dictate the consequences of my behavior. If I choose to disrespect every person that I see and shout at them and scream at them and demean them and criticize them, I'll get an outcome from that individual or those individuals that probably is not optimal. And that's been studied in industry for years and years and years. Um, so there are several of these foundational principles that I believe are just as real and just as material as the laws of nature. If our organizations pay attention and learn those principles and attach them to our mission and our vision and our values, then we'll be able to identify those key behaviors that align to the principles that support our mission, vision, and values. And I think uh, you know that's probably deeper than some people want to go. But in the end, industry has been studying this for decades. Medicine is just now catching up, and uh, we're we're really working hard uh, to develop and identify those key behaviors that support uh, the principles within the Baptist system. And it's it's just like our our HCAP scores, uh, which are based on patient experience. And I used to have a really hard time. Uh, with HCAPs because I was, I would think, well, these HCAP scores don't tell anything about the actual care that we are providing for the patients. But as I've studied and read that, that there is a direct correlation between high HCAP scores and high quality of care scores. For instance, organizations with high HCAP scores, they have, you know, if the nurses communicate better with the patients or if the nurses are responsive to the patients in a timely fashion, they have, they have less cauties, they have less falls, they have less decubitus ulcers. And it, and it goes along with, you know, um, ideal principle-based behavior is going to drive 
excellent results. And I think, you know, I don't know how that magic happens, but it does that if, if you're following the principles, the care is going to be pulled along with it. That's exactly right, HF, and I think that HCAPS is a good example. Uh, patients' perception of how their care was rendered and how the, how the care was received is critical uh, as an outcome that, that we all care about. You don't get those good outcomes unless every individual that interacts with that patient and family similarly was able to demonstrate a level of respect that was palpable. So, you know, I won't go into the details around the domains, but there's a domain of principles that are focused just on culture. What are those key behaviors that drive the culture? Then there's a domain that focuses just on continuous improvement. Am I willing to focus on the details of process and flow in order for that patient to get a high quality, satisfying outcome? And then, do I have the ability to focus on principles that help align every person that sees and touches that patient. And finally, are we able to inculcate in the organization the sense that we're really here to create value for customers? And that's the ultimate. And what are those behaviors that require that value delivery to customers day after day? I think this is, this is what industry is, is, is ahead of us on, and we've got to catch up quick. And, and I really appreciate the work, HF, you do. I've been to New Albany. I've been in the ORs. I, I go there and, and toured recently. And I can tell you that it's wonderful to see a team that's hitting it out of the park with HCAPs and with quality and, you know, nationally known for quality. Uh, it, it's, it's really seeing those behaviors come together uh, in a principle-based culture. And it's, uh, it's, it's a sight to behold. I'm glad you're participating in it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, I was getting ready to turn it over to you, Dr. Lancaster, because I knew you had a big question you wanted to ask also. Well, you know, he was, he was speaking earlier about culture and, and embedding those principles within the culture. And I'm new to the organization, but I understand that the Baptist management system is, has just started within the last 10 years at this organization. Is that, that's correct? And so I, my question is just, how do you go about changing that culture and developing the, the Baptist management system within within a large organization that already probably had a, a solidified culture? Sure. Well, the first thing I would tell you, and Skip and I have had deep conversations about this, that for, it begins with leadership. So it's unfortunately, a, a culture of performance improvement and, and a culture of humility can't arise um, de novo on the front line. It has to be a thoughtful and planned intervention that begins with leadership. And so Jason Little uh, made the decision that he was going to develop a leadership system that would um, be described as Baptist Cares 2.0. Um, and that was really, that work was begun five years ago. Uh, Baptist Cares uh, 2.0 is now in a monograph form. Uh, you'll get a copy at our next leadership intensive, and it will be it will very clearly show that linkage of mission, vision, and values to principles and behaviors. And in fact, if I'm not willing to sign off on the key behaviors, I can't be a leader within Baptist. If I can't find it in my heart to be respectful to Dr. Mason in the OR. I'm really not fit to be a leader in our organization. 
So, and I, I use that just as a tiny example. So I would say, first and foremost, you've got to be willing to have a system-minded approach to the organization, and Jason supports that through a leadership system. Skip is responsible for the performance improvement engine. In that engine, many people call the Baptist Management System. Um, I'll, uh, you know, I, I kind of collectively group them together, but Skip has a very systemic or systematic way that he approaches teaching performance improvement and driving performance improvement within the organization. Um, and, and within that, Skip relies on some very specific principles, right? And those principles bring us back to key behaviors that we need to see. So understanding how standards are brought to bear and how variation is decreased in outcomes is really the work of that performance improvement team uh, and the work of all of us, uh, really, supported by the performance improvement team. But in essence, those are the components. Now, if I were to show you a picture of the Baptist management system, it would look like a mosaic with numerous tiles. One tile for the leadership system at the center, a tile for our quality improvement uh, system, for our safety system, for our HR systems, for our finance control system, strategy, strategy deployment. And so there are multiple components uh, of our management system, uh, but each one of those has an owner, and they not only operate the system, but they improve the system every year. Well, that, that's really, really good. And I, I know I'll speak for Dr. Lancaster and Dr. Mason when I say, Dr. Priest, thank you so very much for not only your leadership and your wisdom and discernment and leading uh, with humility, but thank you for coming on today uh, and, and sharing, you know, how you got started in all this. I remember the very first podcast, uh, I was laughing at it because Dr. Mason asked me, you know, how you and I got to meet. And one of the stories I told him was that I kept on looking at all the books on your bookshelf. And I said, well, those are the same books I have. And this guy must be for real. <laughs> and so uh, I'm just really, uh, really thankful for you. And thank you for your leadership. And thank you for coming on today with us. Well, thank thank you, Skip and, and Jake and HF. And uh, I'm really, I'm really glad that you guys are interested in these topics, and I, I, uh, I think uh, you know there's a lot of good things that lie ahead of each of you in your career. So I look forward to uh, helping you and watching you. So um, have a great day, and thank you. All right, thank Thanks you very much. Thank you.